Section two of Told After Supper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. Told After Supper by Jerome K. Jerome. How the stories came to be told. It was Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve at my Uncle John's Christmas Eve. There is too much Christmas Eve about this book. I can see that myself. It is beginning to get monotonous even to me, but I don't see how to avoid it now. At number 47, Laburnum Grove, Tooting. Christmas Eve, in the dimly lighted—there was a gas-strike on—front parlour, where the flickering firelight threw strange shadows on the highly coloured wallpaper, while without, in the wild street, the storm raged pitilessly, and the wind, like some unquiet spirit, flew moaning across the square, and passed wailing with a troubled cry round by the milk-shop. We had had supper, and were sitting round talking and smoking. We had had a very good supper, a very good supper indeed, Unpleasantness has occurred since in our family in connection with this party. Rumours have been put about in our family concerning the matter generally, but more particularly concerning my own share in it, and remarks have been passed which have not so much surprised me, because I know what our family are, but which have pained me very much. As for my Aunt Maria— I do not know when I shall care to see her again. I should have thought Aunt Maria might have known me better. But although injustice, gross injustice, as I shall explain later on, has been done to myself, that shall not deter me from doing justice to others, even to those who have made unfeeling insinuations. I will do justice to Aunt Maria's hot veal pasties, and toasted lobsters, followed by her own special make of cheesecakes, warm—there is no sense to my thinking in cold cheesecakes, you lose half the flavour—and washed down by Uncle John's own particular old ale, and acknowledge that they were most tasty. I did justice to them then. Aunt Maria herself could not but admit that. After supper, Uncle brewed some whisky punch. I did justice to that also. Uncle John himself said so. He said he was glad to notice that I liked it. Aunt went to bed soon after supper, leaving the local curate, old Dr. Scrubbles, Mr. Samuel Coombs, our member of the county council, Teddy Biffles, and myself, to keep Uncle company. We agreed that it was too early to give in for some time yet, so Uncle brewed another bowl of punch and I think we all did justice to that, at least I know I did. It is a passion with me, is the desire to do justice. We sat up for a long while, and the doctor brewed some gin-punch later on for a change, though I could not taste much difference myself, but it was all good, and we were very happy. Everybody was so kind." Uncle John told us a very funny story in the course of the evening. Oh, it was a funny story! 
I forget what it was about now, but I know it amused me very much at the time. I do not think I ever laughed so much in all my life. It is strange that I cannot recollect that story, too, because he told it us four times, and it was entirely our own fault that he did not tell it us a fifth. After that, the doctor sang a very clever song, in the course of which he imitated all the different animals in a farmyard. He did mix them a bit. He brayed for the bantam-cock and crowed for the pig, but we knew what he meant all right. I started relating a most interesting anecdote, but was somewhat surprised to observe, as I went on, that nobody was paying the slightest attention to me whatever. I thought this rather rude of them at first, until it dawned upon me that I was talking to myself all the time instead of out aloud, so that, of course, they did not know that I was telling them a tale at all, and were probably puzzled to understand the meaning of my animated expression and eloquent gestures. It was a most curious mistake for anyone to make. I never knew such a thing happen to me before. Later on our curate did tricks with cards. He asked us if we had ever seen a game called the three-card trick. He said it was an artifice by means of which low, unscrupulous men, frequenters of race-meetings and such-like haunts, swindled foolish young fellows out of their money. He said it was a very simple trick to do. It all depended on the quickness of the hand. It was the quickness of the hand deceived the eye. He said he would show us the imposture, so that we might be warned against it, and not be taken in by it and he fetched uncle's pack of cards from the tea-caddy, and, selecting three cards from the pack, two plain cards and one picture-card, sat down on the hearth-rug, and explained to us what he was going to do. He said, "'Now I shall take these three cards in my hand, so, and let you all see them, and then I shall quietly lay them down on the rug, with the backs uppermost, and ask you to pick out the picture-card, and you'll think you'll know which one it is. And he did it. Old Mr. Coombs, who is also one of our church-wardens, said it was the middle card. "'You fancy you saw it?' said our curate, smiling. "'I don't fancy anything at all about it,' replied Mr. Coombs. "'I tell you, it's the middle card. I'll bet you half a dollar it's the middle card.' "'There you are. That's just what I was explaining to you,' said our curate, turning to the rest of us. "'That's the way these foolish young fellows that I was speaking of are lured on to lose their money. They make sure they know the card. They fancy they saw it. They don't grasp the idea that it is the quickness of the hand that has deceived their eye.' He said he had known young men go off to a boat-race or a cricket-match with pounds in their pocket, and come home early in the afternoon stone-broke, having lost all their money at this demoralising game. He said he should take Mr. Coombs's half-crown, because it would teach Mr. Coombs a very useful lesson, and probably be the means of saving Mr. Coombs's money in the future, and he should give the two-and-sixpence to the blanket-fund. "'Don't you worry about that,' retorted old Mr. Coombs. 
don't you take the half-crown out of the blanket fund, that's all.' And he put his money on the middle card and turned it up. Sure enough, it really was the Queen. We were all very much surprised, especially the curate. He said that it did sometimes happen that way, though, that a man did sometimes lay on the right card by accident. Our curate said it was, however, the most unfortunate thing a man could do for himself, if he only knew it, because when a man tried and won, it gave him a taste for the so-called sport, and it lured him on into risking again and again, until he had to retire from the contest a broken and ruined man. Then he did the trick again. Mr. Coombs said it was the card next the coal-scuttle this time, and wanted to put five shillings on it. We laughed at him and tried to persuade him against it. He would listen to no advice, however, but insisted on plunging. Our curate said very well, then. He had warned him, and that was all that he could do. If he, Mr. Coombs, was determined to make a fool of himself, he, Mr. Coombs, must do so. Our curate said he should take the five shillings, and that would put things right again with the blanket fund. So Mr. Coombs put two half-crowns on the card next the coal-scuttle, and turned it up. Sure enough, it was the Queen again. After that, Uncle John had a florin on, and he won. And then we all played at it, and we all won. All except the curate, that is. He had a very bad quarter of an hour. I never knew a man have such hard luck at cards. He lost every time. We had some more punch after that. An uncle made such a funny mistake in brewing it. He left out the whisky. Oh, we did laugh at him and we made him put in double quantity afterwards as a forfeit. Oh, we did have such fun that evening. And then, somehow or other, we must have got on to ghosts, because the next recollection I have is that we were telling ghost stories to each other. End of section 2